Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. We stumbled in together, Lawrence still holding his candle. Mrs. Inglethorpe was lying on the bed, her whole form agitated by violent convulsions, in one of which she must have overturned the table beside her. As we entered, however, her limbs relaxed, and she fell back upon the pillows. The violence of Mrs. Inglethorpe's attack seemed to be passing. She was able to speak in short gasps. Better now. Very sudden. Stupid of me. To lock myself in. A shadow fell on the bed and, looking up, I saw Mary Cavendish standing near the door with her arm around Cynthia. She seemed to be supporting the girl, who looked utterly dazed and unlike herself. Her face was heavily flushed, and she yawned repeatedly. Poor Cynthia is quite frightened, said Mrs. Cavendish in a low, clear voice. She herself, I noticed, was dressed in her white land smock. Then it must be later than I thought. I saw that a faint streak of daylight was showing through the curtains of the windows, and that the clock on the mantelpiece showed to close upon five o'clock. A strangled cry from the bed startled me. A fresh access of pain seized the unfortunate old lady. The convulsions were of a violence terrible to behold. Everything was confusion. We thronged around her, powerless to help or alleviate. A final convulsion lifted her from the bed, while she appeared to rest upon her head and her heels, with her body arched in an extraordinary manner. In vain, Mary and John tried to administer more brandy. The moments flew. Again, the body arched itself in that peculiar fashion. At that moment, Dr. Bowerstein pushed his way authoritatively into the room. For one instant, he stopped dead, staring at the figure on the bed, and, at the same instant, Mrs. Inglethorpe cried out in a strangled voice, her eyes fixed on the doctor. Alfred! Alfred! Then she fell back, motionless on the pillows. With a stride, the doctor reached the bed and, seizing her arms, worked them energetically, applying what I knew to be artificial respiration. He issued a few short, sharp orders to the servants. An imperious wave of his hand drove us all to the door. We watched him, fascinated, though I think we all knew on our hearts that it was too late and that nothing could be done now. I could see by the expression on his face that he himself had little hope. Finally, he abandoned his task, shaking his head gravely. Very sad, very sad, murmured Dr. Wilkins. Poor dear lady, always did far too much, far too much, against my advice, I warned her. Her heart was far from strong. Take it easy, I said to her, take it easy. But no, her zeal for good works was too great. Nature rebelled, nature rebelled. Dr. Bowerstein, I noticed, was watching the local doctor narrowly. He still kept his eyes fixed on him as he spoke. The convulsions were of a peculiar violence, Dr. Wilkins. I am sorry you were not here in time to witness them. They were quite titanic in nature. The Mysterious Affair at Styles by Agatha Christie So, what is going on with this poor dear lady? Well, I thought it was good to have a little bit of a murder mystery bring us into our episode today for a real-life murder mystery involving the exact same poison. Excellent. If you're a patron, you have already heard of Strychnine mm-hmm. just a little bit mm-hmm. when we did movie night and watched A for Arsenic. Mm-hmm. Or no, not A for Arsenic. Arsenic and Old Lace. Thank you. <laughs> arsenic and Old Lace. I was like, that is not right. That's Agatha Christie. <laughs> that's a book. <laughs> that's a book, not a movie. And so I thought that that's what this was because that 
the strychnine makes those crazy art like Mm -hmm. you can't Mm -hmm. even do that naturally not unless you're super into yoga (laughs) super into yoga though but yeah i thought that the parallels were just too crazy to not mention here and so the story that we're talking about today is that of jane stanford who was is it of stanford 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 universities yeah original soul trustee okay According to the lore known by family, friends, students, and professors, Stanford University was founded after 15-year-old Leland Stanford Jr. made a dying wish to his parents, former California Governor Leland Stanford and his wife Jane Stanford, on the morning of May 13, 1884. He's quoted as having said, Father, do not say that you have nothing to live for. Live for humanity. Which, of course, is probably just apocryphal, but that is the lore of... Stanford University. In the spring of 1891, Leland Stanford Junior University began enrolling students. They dropped the Leland and the Junior, I see. I don't know that they dropped it. I think that we just constantly refer to it as Stanford. Oh, interesting. Okay. (laughs) And they really didn't take any time at all to set forth with this plan. Like Mm -hmm. their 15-year-old says, do the thing, daddy. (laughs) And they did the thing. So were they really well off? Oh, yeah, yeah. So on top of being the former California governor, Mr. Stanford was also president of the Central Pacific Railroad and the Southern Pacific Railroad for periods of time. So he had two of the railroad cards. He was considered considered a robber baron. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, money was not an issue. (laughs) Got it. So when little baby Leland says... Start a uni daddy. He said, okay, son. Okay. <laughs> well, they could have taken, if he did say that, they could have taken it to mean literally anything. Right. Well, and that's what the thing, like live for humanity, like that can mean yeah. so much. So much. So much. <laughs> I personally wouldn't have said, you know what, education. I might have said education, but they said education in the way that a robber baron says education. Right. So, right. The Stanfords chose David Starr Jordan, who was then the president of the University of Indiana, to take on the role of president at their university. Once offered, Jordan accepted the position on the spot. He was like, yes, I will be the president of your California university. And I wonder if that was the deciding factor if he was like, get me the hell out of Indiana. (laughs) I mean, maybe. Leland Stanford was not long for this world after this decision. He died two years later, making Mm. Jane Stanford the sole trustee of the college. And while there were actually 24 members on the board of trustees, the board didn't meet until 1897. And then Mrs. Stanford didn't relinquish control of her position as sole trustee until 1903. And she relinquished her position, but only to become the elected president of the board and to essentially hold the same power. So we're using relinquish very loosely. Yeah. So Jane Stanford had a longtime personal secretary named Bertha Burner, who wrote two memoirs about her time and travels with Mrs. Stanford. And these memoirs have, unfortunately, in their digression from her testimony immediately following Mrs. Stanford's death, helped to perpetuate the mystery and the myth surrounding the circumstances of her death. Well, yeah, yeah, because that alone begs the question, what happened? The memoirs have also muddied the waters concerning the events leading up to her death, which we will examine first. We're going to look at this chronologically because I think that's the most reasonable way to look at this. Okay. On January 14th, 1905, Jane Stanford held a board of trustees meeting at her home in the afternoon. According to both Berner and Elizabeth Richmond, who was Stanford's personal maid, around 9 p.m., Elizabeth was summoned to Stanford's room to taste a cup of water from which she had just drunk quite a large amount. 
Richmond said to Stanford and later to others that the water tasted bitter. Of course, water should have never had any taste, and so this is what was making everybody a little nervous, but apparently the bitterness was already enough to induce Stanford to induce vomiting by shoving her fingers down her throat. It was so bitter that she was like, this Noosh. can't be, yeah, this can't be anything Yeah, this can't good. be good. Yeah. Richmond was also quite concerned about the bitterness, and so despite the fact that Stanford had already induced vomiting on herself, Richmond directed for Stanford to drink four or five glasses of warm water to induce more vomiting. Yieldy medicine. We'll definitely talk about water intoxication. Okay, I was... glaze over it this time. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of, like, because I have questions about this, but okay. <laughs> Richmond then had Burner drink the water, and Burner agreed that the water had a queer taste. I was thinking it's like a Culligan jug, but it's not a Culligan jug. It's like a bottle. So like a okay. bottle of water that's being like refreshed for her every day. Gotcha. I kind of feel like they're drinking out of the same bottle. Like out of the actual bottle of water. The bottle of water. Gotcha. And they noticed that in the bottle of water, there were bits floating. And so then mm. that made them really suspicious that there was some sort of contaminant in it. And so they sent the water off for a chemical analysis. A preliminary report was released the following Saturday, January 21st, and a final report was released on January 31st. The preliminary report released on the 21st confirmed the presence of strychnine in the water, while the final report determined the type of strychnine, which was rat poison, and the concentration. A glass full of water from the Poland water bottle would deliver 0.8 grains of strychnine, or 50 milligrams. And this was reported by the chemist as being, quote, above the dose of strychnine because this was during a time when strychnine was used medicinally and a mm. typical dose was one to three milligrams. So However, way more. Way more. However, okay. it was also known that a dose of five milligrams could be fatal. And we know now that a probable lethal oral dose in humans is 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram. So for a 150-pound person, that's 102 milligrams. So potentially a glassful could have definitely killed somebody. Maybe it wouldn't have. Gotcha. It was still gotcha. pretty dangerous. It depends on – it's dangerous, might make you very sick, mm -hmm. but might not necessarily be a lethal dose. <laughs> Upon receiving the preliminary report of the strychnine in the Poland water, Stanford and Burner were urged by Stanford's physician to seek refuge at a hotel in San Jose, California. And I think this is just because she was so well known that it's like, people know which house is yours. And so like, right. why don't you get out, stay at a hotel? Now, Richmond had already been planning to leave Stanford's employ and was at this point no longer in the picture. Stanford was now suffering from a respiratory infection following the poisoning and also from the reality of the situation that somebody had tried to kill her. So she was just like not in a good place. Yeah, that's pretty rough. I mean, right. not only are you sick and this is in the early 1900s, so right. the medical uh, care that she received uh, lacking right. likely and then people are trying to kill you. Yeah, that's a bad time. Right. It's a bad time. So Stanford soon began planning to take a trip to warmer climates, and she had her sights set on Hawaii, and then if that went well, Japan. So she was excited. She was like, I get mm -hmm. to go to Hawaii, I get to go to Japan, the Far East. Her and Burner first traveled to Palo Alto, and then they left by ship for Honolulu on February 14th, 1905. In the meantime, two of Stanford's close friends or advisors, one of them was a lawyer, a lot of like language was used to be like, oh, they were just acquaintances, and it's like one of them was her lawyer. I don't know how close mm. they were. I mean, when you have deep pockets, I assume that... Somewhat close. Yeah. People yeah. Want, want to be close to you. Two of her acquaintances, her advisors, were aware of the poisoning, and they decided to continue the investigation while she was abroad. So you go on vacation. We'll try to figure out what happened here mm. so that you can mm -hmm. come home and feel good about it. 
Mm-hmm. The police were not involved in this initial investigation, and instead, the men decided to employ a private detective at an agency, and his name was Jules Callendon. Unfortunately, nothing remains of Callendon's investigative notes and findings except those published by the San Francisco Chronicle and, like, other newspapers at the time, because all of his original notes were lost in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and fire. Hmm. I mean, not to say that it's, like, good that it happened, but at least there was a reason for (laughs) their disappearance (laughs) instead of, like, because I already had my, like... My suspicions were raised, but (laughs) that makes a little more sense. The first thing Callendon did was investigate Richmond because she left so quickly after the poisoning. Sure, sure. He tailed her for two weeks, though not inconspicuously. She was aware of the tale the whole time. And she told Alfred Beverly, who was a former butler of Stanford, and he was just outraged that they would treat Richmond like this. He was like, how dare you? How dare you tail her? She had nothing to do with it. She was already planning on leaving. So after the two-week tale, Callendon finally made contact with Richmond and interrogated her face-to-face. She explained her leave from the Stanford house. She was like, it wasn't suspicious. It had been planned. And she was just waiting for her replacement to be hired. And her replacement, mm-hmm. May Hunt, had been hired just after the Poland water incident. So it was just all this, like, timing stuff. Nothing sounds unreasonable about this. Right. And I also feel like Ms. Stanford, if she just all of a sudden bounced on her, I feel like Ms. Stanford would have brought this up. Oh, yeah. She would have been like, that right. seems suspicious. But she right. was like, I know this woman. Like, I, I don't think so. Richmond also told Callendon about the events as she knew them for the evening of the Poland water incident. So after she was like, it wasn't me, they were like, okay, and tell us what you think happened. And she explained that normally the houseboy, Ah Young, took a fresh bottle of Poland water to Mrs. Stanford's bedroom every day. But on January 13th, the day before the incident, he had forgotten. Richmond knew this and asked the butler to uncork a bottle for her, and then she placed the new bottle that she didn't uncork but had asked to be uncorked on the night table. On January 14th, Richmond saw that the bottle had been partially drunk and she decided to just not replace it. It wasn't her job and why waste water? So it seems that everyone believes that the houseboy also didn't replace this bottle. And so this is the poison bottle in question. This bottle that was put out on the 13th that was uncorked by the butler put out by Richmond. This means that the bottle was poisoned on the 14th at some point after it had been partially drunk and not when it was first on court. Mm. So it probably wasn't the butler, but it's like, well, then who was it? Right. Callendon and the PI agency he worked for tried to find strychnine for sale at druggists in San Francisco. They were like, we can just trace the sale. Mm -hmm. They've done that before. But they couldn't find any sales in San Francisco, San Jose, or Palo Alto that could be linked to somebody at the Stanford household. None of the other employees of the household seemed suspicious to the PI, and although there were a number of people at the Board of Trustees meeting on the 14th, it seems that none of them garnered suspicion either. They just didn't think that anybody went upstairs or into whatever part of the house the bedroom was in, so they were like, they didn't even have access to the bedroom. They are like, not a suspect. Callendon began to believe that the incident was not, in fact, an attempted murder, and that the strychnine had been added to the water bottle after Stanford had drunk from it and called attention to her assistance. So he's trying to say, like, she shows that she drank it because they might be aware of how much water was in the bottle. Mm -hmm. And then she says, oh, no, and then forces herself to vomit, to put up the charade, adds strychnine to the bottle so that Richmond and Burner can taste it. I don't know. It doesn't make sense That sounds, that doesn't make any sense. This is where he's going, being like, I don't know who could have put it in there. Like, nobody had access. So the newspapers, however, disagreed with him. They've generally agreed with you and me. And they Mm -hmm. worried that not finding the individual who poisoned Stanford meant that a dangerous person was 
was among the people and could strike again to hurt somebody or possibly kill them. Well, and not only that, but Ms. Stanford's still at risk. If she was the target, which I imagine she would be, and it and it's also one of those things like if you're going to poison the president of a university, that also doesn't seem like the person who's going to go commit crimes on somebody else. It seems pretty specific. Yeah, this this to me seems specific. This doesn't seem like just somebody committing a crime. They right. had to go through a lot to poison this lady. The investigation was considered closed by the agency. Of course. And the other medicines in Stanford's empty home weren't collected, and no other suspects besides Richmond were examined or questioned by the agency or by police. But this is where things get interesting, is once Mm. Stanford is in Hawaii. So I want to play a little clue to figure out the real events of the death of Jane Stanford. First, you have to know this. Berner and Stanford stayed at the Moana Hotel during their time on Oahu. At 8.30 p.m. on February 28, 1905, Berner prepared a digestive aid for Stanford using half a teaspoon of bicarbonate that had been purchased in Palo Alto before the pair had embarked for Hawaii two weeks beforehand. She placed the bicarbonate mixture in water along with a cascara pill on the nightstand. The pills were actually prescribed to Berner, but Stanford would sometimes take them. This pill contained the bark of the cascara plant, which was often used as a laxative in indigenous medicine in the Pacific Northwest, and Strychnos nux vomica, which is from a tree, literally called the strychnine tree, from Southeast Asia. This actually didn't have purgative effects, and it's kind of weird, I think, that she took it at night. Originally, I thought it was purgative effects because you can vomit from strychnine, but it doesn't necessarily cause, like, lower bowel purging, I guess, is the euphemism I'll use. (laughs) (laughs) But it it more, like, causes you to, like, have a little pep. So it's kind of weird she would, like, give it to her at night with her digestive aid. Yeah. I guess this was, like, their nightly ritual. You know, they fell into their little thing that they did at night. Sure, sure. But still, that's a little... Medicine was weird back then, too. I mean, yeah. I mean, they were using strychnine medicinally, which I guess, (laughs) side question, does that still happen? We'll get to it. (laughs) At 9 p.m., Berner and Hunt, who was Stanford's new maid, retired to their room across the hall from Stanford's room. At approximately 11.15, Stanford called out from her room, May, Bertha, I am so sick. Berner and Hunt rushed to Stanford's room, as did another guest, because, you know, they're across the hall and just everybody can hear that this is happening. And they were greeted by Stanford standing in the doorframe to her room. And she says, Bertha, run for the doctor. I have no control of my body. I think I have been poisoned again. Now, another guest who was a doctor, who was named Dr. Humphreys, was someone from the floor above. And he actually heard all of this going on from, mm. from his room. And he, so he, like, already had his pants on and everything when they came up to get him. He found Stanford standing by her washstand, supported by Berner and Hunt, trying to sip warm water. Because, again, they're trying to do the whole thing that they did back in San Francisco, where mm-hmm. they wanted to just purge it if she did have poison. When Berner rubbed Stanford's cheeks, she was able to get several sips of water in, but then her jaws would lock up and it would be difficult uh. again. And Stanford's actually said, I cannot take it. I cannot take the water. My jaws are set. And it was not enough water to induce vomiting that they were able to get down, and so Stanford was given mustard water. She was only able to vomit up a few ounces of gastric content even then Mm. with this mustard emetic. Dr. Humphreys was beginning to prepare another emetic, a solution of bromine and chloral hydrate, when Stanford exclaimed, My jaws are stiff! And then Humphreys, he put his fingers up to her jaws and he verified this by palpitation of her jaws. 
Stanford was scared. Of course she was scared. She already thinks she's been poisoned again. She's scared, she's in pain, and she cries out, this is a horrible death to die. Like, she is aware of what's happening. That's, that's gotta be fucking terrifying. Like, and especially because she's already been through this before. Right. So she's going through it again. And more intensely. And more, yeah, exactly. That, I can't even imagine. Now, Stanford was able to still explain the moments before everyone entered the room. So she would say, my jaws are stiff, I'm in pain. And then she would still be able to talk a little bit afterwards. So these are important symptoms to, I guess, take note of. So she's telling them what happened before they came in the room. She told Humphreys a spasm had thrown her out of bed, but she hadn't experienced any pain. She was just violently jerked out of bed. She immediately became worried at this, that she had been poisoned again. And then Berner continued on and told him more completely about the Poland water incident. And so Humphreys immediately pocketed the bicarbonate and the cascara tablets. So like the rest of the tablets and then the little jar of bicarbonate. He then went to his room to get the mustard emetic. He found another doctor to bring a stomach pump. And then Berner and Hunt, they stayed with Stanford and they tried to like bathe her hands and her feet with warm water, massage her limbs and cheeks with alcohol to make her more comfortable. They were doing everything they they could as non-doctors to just try to like get her through this. Because maybe, maybe if they could just get her through the pain, she would be okay. Right. And it's like one of those things too, where if they could get her to calm down and drink Mm -hmm. more water to try to throw up more. Mm -hmm. And what's the purpose of massaging her limbs and face or cheeks with the alcohol? I guess this is something that's still done in like physical therapy is if you massage with alcohol, it irritates the skin and it'll inflame the area. And so it draws blood to that area. And so if you do it as a massage, it draws blood to that area and it can actually reduce pain and inflammation. Hmm. Interesting. So Berner thought that after the spasms were ceasing a little bit and she was able to talk and she and Hunt were able to massage her, she thought that Stanford's condition was improving. She was like, you're coming out all right. But then Stanford was gripped by another spasm and Stanford made it clear that she believed she was about to die. And she cried out, oh God, forgive me my sins. Is my soul prepared to meet my dear ones? Again, this could be apocryphal. I'm not exactly sure where this quote is gotten from, but there were a couple people in the room. And so this could be something she actually said. Either way, we're getting the impression like she She knows knows. she's about to die. She She knows. knows. Yeah. She was then overtaken by a titanic spasm that ended with Stanford's body in a state of complete rigidity as her jaws had been. Her jaws clamped shut, her legs opened wide, but her feet twisted inwards, and then her hands clenched into fists and her head was thrown back. Just like in the begin, the story mm-hmm. that you shared in the beginning. Yeah. Just like that. Okay. Dr. Humphreys estimated that this spasm, with her jaws clenched and her hands clenched and her head thrown back, lasted three minutes. Ooh. And let me tell you, I, I threw my back out in January and I had a little bit of those spasms in my back. If it's the same thing as this, to have it lasted three minutes... She may have been just fine with dying after this because this is exhausting and painful. Yeah. So while she's in this spasm, Humphrey sends for a guest to get another doctor, the in-house doctor that's supposed to be called on, Dr. Murray. Okay. When Dr. Murray arrived, Stanford was seated upright in a chair, supported by Humphreys and Hunt, and had her head extended, and he described her as having bulging eyes and dilated pupils. And then her last spasm, that three-minute long one, must have just ended, but she was no longer breathing. So, like, it does affect your diaphragm and all those respiratory muscles, but she did have a pulse. So this Mm. is just taking it out of her. Mm -hmm. The two doctors carried Stanford to the bed. Some accounts say that she remained in the chair. 
The doctors say that they carried her to the bed, at which point her jaw and her hands released, but her body remained in that arch, like we heard about in the story. Mm -hmm. And she was dead. She was dead, and her body remained in a rigid arch. As a layman, I never worked in the field at all. Like, I know that's not normal. Now, the whole scene, according to Humphreys and Burner and Hunt, from the time that they arrived at her door to her death was no more than 20 minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. excruciating 20 minutes. And then, five minutes after that, the other doctor arrived with the stomach pump. So it's just like, it, it all happened so quickly. Mm-hmm. At the coroner's inquest, this doctor, who came in after everything, said that he was impressed with one conspicuous feature, and that was the rigidity of the position of the feet. The ankle was in extreme extension, that is, the toes thrown down so that the arch of the foot was very much exaggerated and drawn inward toward the middle line, so the middle line of the body, mm-hmm. a condition that I don't recall having ever seen before on any body. This arching of her feet and her back was noticeable. It was impressive, you know, not in a good way, but like, damn. The second doctor and Dr. Murray, Humphreys had them taste the bicarbonate of soda after he did, and they all three agreed that it tasted better, like strychnine or Nux Vomica. They specifically were like, yeah, this tastes like strychnine. The chamber pot with the gastric contents was collected, and then the mainland was notified of Stanford's demise via cable. Immediately, the doctors present shared their opinion that Stanford had died from strychnine poisoning with Stanford's colleagues and the Honolulu police. As soon as they informed anybody about the death, they were like, this was strychnine poisoning. Yeah. An autopsy was conducted on March 1st. The doctor conducting the autopsy noted that because there was no cutaneous or mucous membrane wounds, he could rule out tetanus as the cause for the spasms experienced by Stanford. I think a point I want to make here is that we're saying like there's tetanic spasms and he's ruling out tetanus because tetanus and strychnine actually present in very similar ways. Okay. And most people are probably familiar, like, if you're unfortunate enough to get tetanus, you might get lockjaw. Right. But you can actually, if the tetanus is allowed to progress enough, you can actually get that arching of the back and the, Mm. yeah, it's bad. And so they have to rule out tetanus. And once they do that, once he's like, there's nothing to to make believe that she has an infection, this is strychnine. Mm. And he was also quite impressed by the rigidity of the body, probably why he was like, I have to immediately rule out tetanus and noted that the rigidity was far more extreme than even normal rigor mortis. Oh, wow. Now, let's talk about rigor mortis. When somebody dies, even if they're clenched, even if they're holding something or something like that, their bodies first go through a period of relaxation and then enter rigor. This is well documented and was even in the early 1900s because it can help determine time of death. So this is like early, early, early criminology. The doctor who did the autopsy said, this is not normal, right. guys. Right. So slowly over the 24 to 48 hours following a death, the body starts to stiffen but not contract. It just locks in place. And so whatever position that you die in, your body will relax and then it will stiffen due to a buildup of acid in the muscle tissues. We know the general, like, time breakdowns even. So if the body feels warm and there's no rigor, death occurred under three hours ago. And this is all dependent on temperature of the room and stuff, right? Sure, sure, sure. If the body feels warm but stiff, the death occurred three to eight hours ago. Okay. If the body feels cold, there's no longer body temperature and it's stiff. Death was eight to 36 hours ago. And if the body is cold and not stiff, that rigor has started to loosen, then the death occurred more than 36 Mm. hours ago. 
so it doesn't stay. No, no. It is impressive when it happens because literally you're like a mannequin. I've, I've seen pictures where they've taken a body to show what rigor mortis is, a body that just died supine on the back, and they put it across two chairs, and there's no bending of the body. It's like a plank. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's intense stuff. But he noticed that the body was contracted. It wasn't just rigor. It was contracted. Because rigor would be, like you said, it's stuck in whatever position it's in. When it's contracted, it is in an abnormal position. Yes, exactly. Okay. The San Francisco police decided to further the Poland water investigation on March 1st, 1905, after they were notified of Stanford's death. They collected all of Callendon's notes on the matter, and they were like, okay, we're going to look into this. On March 2nd, San Francisco PD received a cablegram from the Honolulu High Sheriff, which stated that the bottle of bicarbonate contained, quote, 43 drams, in which there were 662 grains of strychnine. This means that Stanford's approximately 160 milliliter bottle of bicarbonate, which is just baking soda, had nearly 43 grams of strychnine. So allow me to contextualize this for anybody who's like Mm. driving and they can't really focus on that right now. A small hospital-sized can of ginger ale. Like the little tiny baby cans. Tiny baby cans is about 150 milliliters, which is full of liquid and bicarbonate as a solid. But imagine a little bitty baby can of ginger ale. A glass spice bottle, so one of the like nice square glass spice Mm -hmm. bottles that you might get at the grocery store, that contains around 45 grams of spices. So imagine all 45 grams of, say, ground ginger in that nice glass bottle, and the entirety of it is poured into that tiny little hospital can of ginger ale. Mm -hmm. There would hardly be any room left for actual bicarbonate in there. It would be like somebody scooped out the bicarbonate and just replaced it with strychnine, right? So people are like, holy shit, holy shit, This is a lot, yeah. Yeah, and so with this information, San Francisco PD was under the impression that Stanford's first incident with the Poland water had definitely been murderous, and the murderer somehow made it to Hawaii with her and wanted to make sure that there were no mistakes the second time around in Hawaii. However, following this cablegram, there was silence from Hawaii to San Francisco, and the press began to suspect there was some sort of cover-up. The Honolulu High Sheriff actually denied sending the cablegram, and so everything's starting to look really suspicious. But it wasn't suspicious. He was just real embarrassed because he had, in part, started a spread of misinformation regarding her death. No. What the chemists analyzing the bicarbonate actually found was that the bottle contained 43 grams of bicarbonate soda. Which makes way more sense. And so he just misread drams as grams. Which, like, it's weird that he made that mistake in the first place because drams is a liquid measurement and bicarbonate is a solid. It would be like me saying, like, I have 150 milliliters of bicarbonate. You'd be like, why are you measuring it in liquid? There was also more unnerving silence coming from the analysts because strychnine was difficult to to extract and quantify in organs in particular and was taking Mm. them a long time, like longer than the newspapers thought was reasonable. Which, that's just science for you. This is science in the early 1900s. We're not working with cutting-edge equipment. I mean, cutting-edge for that time. Right. My main source for this story is a book called The Mysterious Death of Jane Stanford. And it's by a doctor who actually works at Stanford. The thing that I really, really enjoyed about this book was as I was reading it, I was like, "Ah, yeah, that's toxicology. That's working in crime and science simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Like it was just such a good example of that. 
We'll get to it with the testimony of the doctors and the analysts, but I was just like, this is something that in a hundred years has not changed. As the science has progressed to get us to be able to see like smaller amounts of things and maybe look at organs a little bit more easily, there are still things that we're like, that's just difficult. And the public is like, is it difficult? Are you trying to hide something? Like, Well, yeah, and I can understand that it's one of those things when they don't understand science. Yeah then it just must be wrong. Like, well, I can't understand it. How can it be right if I can't understand it? <laughs> and it's like, well, I went to a university to get right. this information. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> While the analyses were being conducted, the San Francisco Police Department began to investigate more closely the members of the Stanford household. So they were like, Again? Okay. They hadn't investigated. They had Callendon's notes on Richmond, but they hadn't done any investigation. Oh, they hadn't done any. Right, because those were just PIs before. Got it. So back to the night of January 14th. The first poisoning. There were 10 people present because of the Board of Trustees meeting, but only five of them had access to Stanford's bedroom. Immediate suspicion with Richmond already rolled out, and she couldn't have even played a part in Honolulu because the baking soda was bought 10 days after she left. There was no way she was involved. Right. So immediate suspicion fell on Burner. Quickly, however, the police determined it would make no sense for Burner to kill Stanford. She had been Stanford's secretary for 20 years, during which time her position had allowed her to travel the world over, and she had been generously compensated for her work. Stanford's death brought an immediate end to this lifestyle. Yeah, so, why would she kill the golden goose? Right, and so they're like, okay, it probably wasn't Burner. Right. The houseboy that I talked about, their name was Ah Young, and there was another Chinese employee of the household. So there was some anti-Chinese sentiment regarding both of these people, but mm. ultimately the police didn't think they did it. They were not kind about it, and they were super racist in their, like, conclusion that they didn't do it, but they were like, we don't think that they did it. Mm. And then there was the butler, Alfred Beverly, who Richmond had already informed oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. of her tale. Yeah. And he's already, like, not having it. He was already like, what is your problem? Like, right. it was not us. And... It turns out they did some digging on him, and it turns out he was a pretty unscrupulous character, and he got some, like, kickbacks from some art deals that he did while working with Stanford. I didn't totally get it, but, like, they were like, ah, well, we're familiar with kickbacks. We don't think you're a murderer. We just think that, I don't know, you got dirty money or something. Well, yeah, because, I mean, why would they, I don't know, if he's getting kickbacks, like, yeah, why would he kill her? Right, and so they didn't think that he was the poisoner, which means okay. they have no suspects. They're like, oh, there right. goes all five people who had access. Right. Back to that bottle of bicarbonate. The chemists are trying to analyze both the bottle and Stanford's organs that were collected at autopsy. The first sample from the bottle resulted in a concentration of 0.07 grains of strychnine, while the next two measured out to be 0.13 and 0.14 grains. And so in milligrams, that's 4.5, 842, and 907 milligrams. So they were like, we would like more consistent numbers. And so <laughs> they were not super happy with their own readings. And at this point of time, they did have the ability, it sounds like, to test the body for strychnine. They had the ability to test the body, but that was going to be harder than just testing the bicarbonate. So right now they're just testing the bicarbonate. Oh, gotcha. After testing the bicarbonate and bringing these results, they wanted to emphasize that even if the first sample was a deviation from the average, there was still clearly a foreign, deadly substance in the bicarbonate that should not have been there. Even if quantitatively we can't say exactly how much, qualitatively there is strychnine present. My understanding is that there should be 0% strychnine. Any is a problem. 
And like good scientists, I mean, not great scientists because they, I, you know, I have issues from the 21st century with the way they were doing it, which I can get into. But then they were at least like, we can explain why we think there is a discrepancy in these values. So mm. they said that the difference in the sample values could have been because of the distribution of the strychnine and the bicarbonate. So imagine that you have a bottle mm. filled mm-hmm. with powder and you dump mm-hmm. strychnine in it. Right. So we don't know how Burner, did she tilt the bottle to spoon it out? Did she have it upright and spooned it out? Did the chemist tilt it the same way? Was it shifted around? Too many variables. Right. And so that first sample that they took might have been from the side that didn't have as much strychnine, while the next two may have been from the side that had more strychnine. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Looking back on it, the way we would do things now was we would say, okay, you should have homogenized your bottle so that... Meaning like everything is the same, like shake the shit out of it. Okay, Shake the shit out of it so that no matter what you scoop, it should be the same. And then you should have five samples. You should have five replicate samples. And then if you have one that's an outlier, you hold on to it. You don't like delete your outlier, but then you do a sixth and you say, see how I have these five that make sense. And then the sixth that's an outlier that I can explain. I didn't put enough solution. I dropped my vial or something. The suspected reason why it is an outlier. Got it. Okay. The chemists also analyzed the Cascara pills, and they found that Mm. they contained one-thirteenth of a grain of strychnine, which is 4.5 milligrams. That's about a medicinal dose, according to them. So it doesn't seem like that was tampered with. No, no. nobody just had strychnine. Right. 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 It's just the strychnine tree, so Mm -hmm. of course it's got strychnine. It will fuck up things a little bit because they can be like, well, she was taking strychnine. She was supposed to be taking strychnine, right? And so any amount that we find, blah, 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 supposed to be there. It reminds me of the tetrahydrazoline. (laughs) Yes. Yes, of course you're going to find tetrahydrosoline. He was Because he was taking it as a laxative. Of course you're going to find that in there. Mm-hmm. That's it, what it reminds me of. <laughs> it will go on to fuck that up a little bit, but we can always come back to the bicarbonate and be like, no, no, no. The cascara pills were not the problem here. It's the bicarbonate. Now we're moving on to the discussion of the organs. Even today, organs are very difficult to work with. What they did was they took all of the organs because they kind of wanted to get as representative a sample of the body as a whole to be like, this is the amount we found in the body. We know today that because of different things that go on with the cytochromes in the liver and the blood-brain barrier in the brain and blood in the heart and stomach contents, different organs are known to compartmentalize drugs in different ways. When I was at the coroner's office, we might say, we found this in the blood, but we also wanted to look in the liver and the brain also for some reason. Normally, if we had blood, we didn't do that because blood is just so much better than organs. Okay. And so it was usually if we had like a decomposed body that... That doesn't have much blood that it you doesn't can have take a liquid. sample. Yeah. Gotcha. And so then we would take maybe the liver and maybe the brain, but we would take them individually. And then okay. we would look at them individually and say, based on these individual levels and like based on other levels that other doctors and other counties have seen, we think that this is the overall representative number of what mm. was in the body, but you don't look at it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're hard-pressed because it's 1905, and so they're looking at pretty much everything together. They are looking at combined gastric contents, urine, the vomit from the basin even, which Mm -hmm. that's not something that we would normally add to it. You'd look at that separately. 
They're also looking at the stomach itself, the intestines, the kidneys, and the liver. Okay. And so they're trying to quantify if they can. It's being so difficult because it's organs that they're having a really hard time quantifying it. And so what they end up do is doing a colorimetric test, which means that kind of like the Marsh test, you know, where if there's a silver sheen on the glass at the end of the test, then you know it's arsenic. And so if this color metric test that they do is purple, the only thing that causes this thing to turn purple is strychnine. Gotcha. But okay. The, the problem with color metric tests is it's subjective. It's subjective. Color is subjective. Yeah. Is it purple? I think it was purple, but I don't, maybe it wasn't, you know? And so the chemist responsible for the analysis of the organs said on trial, I don't feel justified in testifying to the presence of a thing. I cannot see her way because he couldn't quantify it. But at the same time, there is no other body known that gives a fading purple reaction. So he was confident that he saw the fading purple, but it was a colorimetric test. And so he concluded by saying, and that therefore it must be present in very minute quantities. Mm. Right. So he says, I'm pretty sure it's there. I'm pretty sure it's there in a small amount, but I can't absolutely attest to it because I can't weigh it. I can't physically see it and give you a number. Right. I just have a color. So the chemists responsible for the bicarbonate and the organs also cautioned that considering the small amount of the poison which may produce death, it is absolutely necessary to operate on a very large quantity of material. So even though that they had taken all of those organs and put them together, they were like, really, we should have had like 12% of the body to work with. And I doubt mm. that they were given 12% of the body. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Because that's a lot of the body. And the heart, the heart and the brain were taken out, but they were sent elsewhere. And so they didn't have a whole lot to work with. But these guys are saying that they would have also preferred to have had the brain, to have had the spinal cord also the spleen, the blood, and some muscle. But they're also saying that, like, we're not going to say absolutely positively that there was strychnine. We're pretty sure that there was strychnine, like, 70% confident, because we can't be super confident with the colorimetric test. But also consider the colorimetric test would make us presume that there was a minute quantity, and you only need a minute quantity to kill somebody. Right. In the future, if you think somebody is poisoned with strychnine, please give us more of the body to work with. I don't love this doctor saying like it's present, but in very minute quantities, knowing that minute quantities kill you. There's a part of me that feels like he's speaking in half truths. But it's also like having been on that side of it. Sure. I also understand the trepidation of being like, I can't put a number on this. I would love to be able to put a number on this. But since I can't, I the best can, I can do. Yeah. Is qualitatively say and qualitative results are you don't want to testify and say that this is a murder trial and have it become a murder trial on your word that you think based on a color that sure. this was murder, you know, like I get that. I, and that's fair. That is totally fair. I get that. But it's one of those things where I'd like to hope that they testified also to how little strychnine it takes to kill yeah, they did. They they were like considering the small amount of poison which may produce death. So they were like, it could have been a small amount that killed her. In order for us to give you the number for that small amount, we need more of the body. And we don't have that. They actually added small but lethal quantities would be beyond the reach of a chemical analysis. Small but lethal. 
So they're basically saying like, we don't have the ability Mm -hmm. to test for the smallest amount of strychnine that it would take to kill somebody. And how do you argue with that though? This is why I'm like, oh, it's such a good example of being in the medical legal forensic everything. Because like I've seen, you know, cases like this with fentanyl maybe where you're like, this is such a small amount of fentanyl and technology has a really hard time seeing numbers that small reported numbers that are approximately that small have been fatal and maybe you have symptoms the symptoms and like the presentation and the other things found at autopsy help determine cause of death for the medical examiner Mm. but it's like if you don't have any of the symptoms what do you say about it and that's why this case is kind of frustrating because you have there is the presence of strychnine in the bicarbonate there's stuff here there shouldn't be any strychnine in the bicarbonate well and you can say i don't know if it was necessarily enough to kill her she was an old lady but maybe she was real rough and just built like an ox but she's presenting with strychnine like symptoms that's just it They ultimately concluded that the chemical facts in the case do not warrant any opinion as to how Mrs. Stanford came to her death, which is like, sorry. Sorry that chemistry is sometimes disappointing. One of the chemists impressed emphatically that he had worked hard to recover whatever strychnine may have been present in Stanford's organs, but that the colorimetric test was ultimately insufficient to incriminate strychnine. People began to speculate that Stanford had killed herself. I mean, sure, question mark? (laughs) But May Hunt recalled Stanford's dread when she spoke of the night of January 14th. She remembered Stanford saying that she was so concerned that if she had died during that first incident, that people might have believed that the act was a suicide if it had been successful. She was, like, really scared of people thinking she had killed herself. Well, and that makes sense. It it seems funny to me that if somebody were trying to kill themselves, why would they be trying to get help? Yeah. Why wouldn't she just lay there and die? And I know that I'm sure, you know, the whole regret thing maybe, but also like that doesn't make a lick of sense. I don't know why you would choose strychnine to kill yourself with. I don't either because there were other ways in the early 1900s. Yeah, and I'm not going to say that any of them is preferable, but like the spasming that you go through with strychnine, like, uh, uh, that is not at the top of the list if I'm thinking about it, you know? No. And I mean, maybe she didn't know how bad it, like, let's say it was suicide for a second. I mean, maybe she didn't know, but I kind of feel like, I kind of feel like you'd know, you know? I kind yeah, I agree. Like I kind of feel like if you are going to do that, Mm -hmm. you would maybe want to research what you're doing. Well, and I I don't know. I feel like it's one of those things where like if somebody now were to be like, oh, I'm gonna like drink bleach, it'd be like, is that what you want to do? Because you know what that does, right? Like that's a way that people do it, but that's not a good time. Yeah, I find it weird that they even threw that out there as an I find that odd. People, you know, when they can't find a suspect and when they're going back and forth as to, like, whether or not it was murderous. And she was, like, interested in spiritualism and things like that. So people were just kind of grasping at straws. Sure. Mostly, however, people believe she was murdered, including the jurors in the coroner's inquest. So their verdict was, Jane Lathrop Stanford came to her death from strychnine poisoning, said strychnine having been introduced into a bottle of bicarbonate soda with felonious intent by some person or persons unknown. So they at least made a charge. I mean, even though it's not to anybody, like... We have where Mr. Body died, and we (laughs) have what we think killed him, but we don't know who. President Jordan, however, he disagreed. Oh, he's back. That's how it could have happened. But how about this? (laughs) 
President Jordan arrived in Honolulu on March 10th after a four-day steamer voyage and immediately began a four-day private investigation into Stanford's death that concluded in his firm opinion that the woman had died of natural causes. Baloney. On March 15, 1905, a funeral was held for Stanford at the Central Union Church in Honolulu. She wasn't buried there, but services were held, and then her body was taken back to the mainland. Jordan then requested the opinion of a man named Dr. Waterhouse, who compiled a four-page report on the death entitled, Testimony of Dr. Waterhouse. Mm. The beginning of the report was Waterhouse answering three leading questions by Jordan. This is like the prologue to the report is like, Blah, blah, blah questions. Basically, could it have been anything but strychnine? You know? And it's like, okay. All right. So Bruh, this is how we're going to start is, it. You're not being sneaky. <laughs> Jordan went on to suggest in these questions that Stanford died of angina pectoris rather than strychnine poisoning. And the report by Waterhouse went on to say that Waterhouse's opinion was that Stanford had not exhibited even one symptom characteristic of strychnine poisoning. He's a quack. <laughs> I have barely any knowledge of strychnine. I have approximately 10 minutes of a podcast episode about strychnine. And as soon as I heard about this bitch and her arched back, I thought strychnine. Mr. Waterhouse, I have taken away your title of doctor. Mr. Waterhouse, I declare shenanigan. Waterhouse came to this opinion because he said Stanford did not have muscle twitching violent convulsions, arching of the back, rigid abdominal and thoracic muscles, staring eyes, and the involuntary grin that are induced by a strychnine spasm. Because he was there. And he obviously knows that the people who saw the things, they were all wrong. All it's, of them. It's so funny because I really all did. All of them. I really did want to structure this as like, here are the things other people think, but I'm just like, you're fucking wrong. Sir, you're wrong. He continued and said that the massaging of the limbs by Hunt and Burner would have caused Stanford extreme pain rather than relief had she been experiencing strychnine poisoning. Has he himself felt <laughs> this relief? I think that he's half right. Because okay. I think he's coming at this from the point of view that there are some cases of people who are being poisoned in their central nervous system, perhaps even specifically by strychnine, that when you touch them suddenly, it is a shock. And so it hurts. Almost mm. like I imagine people with fibromyalgia, how they have the pins and needles. And so if they were to get a shock, it's just like everything hurts. Don't fucking everything. touch me. So I think he's coming at it from that point of view. Like saying that it would have been painful mm -hmm. just to be touched. like mm -hmm. Yeah. So he's saying, I wasn't there. She wasn't doing this. But the thing that she was doing, it was fake. Yeah. <laughs> because that's exactly what she had on her mind right before she died. Like, right. I'm sorry, Mr. Waterhouse. But had she have died? Because angina, like, is that, he's saying a heart attack, right? Yeah. So she did all of these other things from a heart attack. And I don't and even, to be honest, I don't know what the female symptoms of a heart attack are. I'm aware they're different. I think your jaw hurts. But she wasn't like heart attacking. She was arching her back and staring. And because... had bulging eyes. <laughs> yeah. Would you like me to continue with more I would because <laughs> Yeah, because I'm just going to keep talking about how I don't like him. And nobody, <laughs> nobody needs to hear that right now. So. Mostly, Waterhouse claimed that Stanford was hysterical. Because of course she was. She, she has a vagina in the early 1900s. 
His reasoning for this was that she believed she was being poisoned, and then he fully fucking gaslit this dead woman by ignoring her final dying words and asserting himself that strychnine poisoning would have been a horrible death to die. She said it was horrible. Like, I'm so glad that you used the term gaslight. Like, he's literally gaslighting a dead lady. He's medically gaslighting a Mm -hmm. dead lady. I didn't know that we could reach a new (laughs) level of fucked up. What he's essentially saying is that a strychnine death would have been more horrible than her death. Because she didn't die from strychnine poisoning. She was hysterical. She was hysterical, but she wasn't in horrible pain. This wasn't a horrible death because she would have been reasonably hysterical from a strychnine death. Well, I don't know if he was saying like her uterus was literally wandering away and making her crazy, but he was definitely clinically trying to diagnose her with hysteria as like angina pectoris in the presence of hysteria would be the phrasing we would use today. Because he's saying that she was hysterical because of the heart attack. Right, because she thought that she was being she was poisoned. was being poisoned. And so she was just losing her mind. Cute. We've already kind of mentioned it, but Waterhouse was completely ignoring the rigidity of Stanford's body upon death and the fact that it did not relax upon her death and then gain rigidity as rigor set in, which is what would happen if you had died from a heart attack. Yeah, and how this was remarkable to the other doctors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he, he knows something that they don't. Apparently. Waterhouse seemed to have gathered most of his information from private interviews with none other than Bertha Burner, who, as we've stated, her stories changed throughout time. So he was able to attribute movement and speech to Stanford in the moments before her death that Burner may have believed to remembered, and which would have discredited a strychnine death in Waterhouse's opinion, but which were not corroborated by anyone else present. Why are we talking to her secretary instead of the actual doctor's? I'm guessing because the other doctors didn't want to talk to Dr. Waterhouse. And I kind of think he had a, reputa- a reputation. Oh, really? I, and I I mean, that's the impression that I'm getting from this whole thing. And maybe it wasn't an established reputation before he got involved in Stanford's death. Mm. But certainly afterwards, I think he was kind of a pariah. Well, and it also seems like Mr. Jordan, I feel like, was a guiding hand in yeah. his... I mean, we have Mr. Jordan's questions because that's what's paramount in this. And we're going to talk to the secretary, mm-hmm. not doctors. And they might have been asking burner leading questions that, I mean, I've watched some of those, what is it, JCS Psychology or whatever on YouTube. JCS Criminal Psychology. Yeah. Highly recommend for anybody who <laughs> has not found that. Yeah, where it, like they show you what it would look like to like pretend to be crazy and like what a leading question looks like and mm-hmm. what interrogations look like. Not that I'm pro cop, but it's like those are interesting peeks into like the psychology of deceit on sure. on, on either side. Absolutely. And I mean, and that's why those videos are so excellent. It's just so hard for me to take this guy seriously. Get rid of the fact that he gaslit her. Get rid of the fact that he said she was hysterical and blamed it on that. He's getting bad intel. If he had good intel and he made the statement, then I might not be so upset. I don't know. Like, like at least if they were both coming at it with the same An objective. Set. Yeah. If they yeah. were being objective, because this is grossly judgmental. Furthermore... <laughs> 
<laughs> Berner stated that she did not believe that the first spasm actually threw Stanford out of bed, as the woman herself had said, but mm. had done something similar and less literal than that. Had she been thrown to the floor, she wouldn't have been able to get herself up in the throes of a spasm, even if she had the lower body strength, which she had lacked for so many years that Berner attested she avoided low chairs and baths. So this woman just had no lower body strength. So she doesn't gotcha. think that the spasm literally threw her to the floor. It might have jolted her out of bed and then she was scared and then came to the door. And this mm -hmm. was a point of contention on both sides, which like I would have been fine arguing like witness statements because you remember things not super clearly when things sure. are happening. Sure. But the main points that this whole thing boils down to is not even witness statements. Like it's not something that I'm like, okay, I could see like if they misremember and they remember, but more importantly, the lack of muscles in her lower body that kept her out of low chairs would have also prevented the contraction of muscles required for Stanford to have adopted the more typical strychnine posture that Waterhouse saw in her death. Yes. Uh, so her back was arched, but it wasn't arched as much as a normal strychnine death because she didn't have any lower body strength. Like she literally didn't have the ability to yeah. do so. Yeah, because your muscles can only contract as much as they have strength for. No, that makes sense. Jordan then sought to convince the public of his opinion by sending a telegram to Stanford's lawyer to forward onto the Associated Press, which essentially said that Berner had taken a dose of the bicarbonate and a cascara pill at the same time as Stanford, and she was fine. And this is something that hasn't changed. Whoever's yeah. first to press can usually set the narrative. After her Honolulu funeral and the transport of her body back to San Francisco, Jordan also sent a press release affirming Stanford's natural death. I don't like this. <laughs> then Jordan reconsidered these actions right before the ship left the harbor, and he sent another telegram to Carl Smith, who was the guy that he was like, Carl, can you send these telegrams to mm. the lawyer mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. This new telegram read, Carl Smith, kindly suppress cablegram, not quite true, stop not quite true. Not quite true that she didn't die a natural death and that Berner didn't actually take any of the bicarbonate. But it was too late. The damage had been done and could not be undone. Yeah, the email was already sent. You can't undo it. The statement affirming that Sanford's death was natural read, We think it probable that her death was due to a combination of conditions and circumstances. The occurrence of the strychnine in the bicarbonate soda is as yet unexplained. The fact that it is not in excess of usual proportions suggests either an error of a pharmacist or else that the combination was prepared for tonic purposes. But it was in excess, wasn't it? Yes. And what were these conditions and circumstances that convinced multiple physicians that Stanford's death was simply natural that they were referring to? According to Berner's testimony, the day of Stanford's death, she overindulged in food and exercise to include four Swiss cheese sandwiches, two tongue sandwiches, two lettuce sandwiches, two to three large pieces of gingerbread, two cups of cold coffee, and 12 to 14 pieces of French candy. That's Which a is, lot of sandwiches. That's a lot of bread. That's like a whole loaf of bread. In reality, the sandwiches provided by the hotel and eaten by Stanford were tongue, cheese, and lettuce sandwiches between two pieces of bread. It's unlikely that she took each of the ingredients apart and then somehow got more bread to make individual sandwiches. So it looks uh, like she maybe yeah. ate like two sandwiches total. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Who's out here leading lettuce sandwiches? <laughs> Stop it, Burner. Stop it. <laughs> Nobody's out here doing that. 
Berner also claimed Stanford overexerted herself by making stops at the Royal Mausoleum and the Sachs store, but this appears to have been a short walk, and Stanford's health was well enough that two days before her death, so two days before this overexertion supposedly, mm -hmm. she had taken a brisk walk lasting longer than an hour to no ill effect. If that day didn't overexert her, why would this day? Yeah. Yeah. On March 22nd, Jordan began to realize that he needed to start some damage control on what had been released to the press. <laughs> Only physicians, it seems, had seen Waterhouse's whole report, and they were kind of like keeping it under wraps to like bring out later or something. I don't know. The public had been made aware that Jordan and Waterhouse believed that the strychnine in the bicarbonate was a medicinal amount. And this claim was quickly refuted by the exact pharmacist who procured the bottle in Palo Alto. Oh, shit. Yeah. And he stated in a separate interview to a newspaper that the bicarbonate definitely did not contain strychnine, either by prescription or by accident. He showed up with receipts. Yeah, well, and of course he did, because they're trying to slander him. Because it puts him in question. Yeah. And he's like... The fuck I did. So then Jordan changes the story. Mm. And Jordan says that Dr. Humphreys had added the strychnine to the bottle. And so we're just going to slander somebody else. Yeah. And he's, he's saying that Humphreys did this in order to bolster his position either personally or professionally. Because who was Jordan to inquire as to exact motives? He just wanted to bolster his position as having, like, been on a high-profile murder case. And so he's, like, setting it up to look like a murder case is Jordan's theory. Gotcha. I mean, because I was going to ask, like, what does he have to gain from, well, okay? And maybe Humphrey's motives didn't demand questioning, but Jordan's certainly did. Because Absolutely. it is curious that Waterhouse deviated so strongly from his physician colleague's opinions on the cause of Stanford's death. Why would he do that? One explanation for his ability to so easily side with Jordan may be directly correlated to his ability to take a trip to Bahang, Malaya in April to tend to his plantation of rubber trees. Could it be that Waterhouse was able to bankroll this voyage to tend to his expensive and faraway side project because he was receiving a sizable payout from Jordan for writing a report that sided with his theory? Possible. And it's an even greater possibility that this was the case when considering the August 23rd report from the Hawaiian Star that supported rumors that the four Hawaiian physicians present at Stanford's death had each been told that the size of their fees for their involvement at the autopsy and inquest all might be overlooked if they dropped the strychnine poisoning diagnosis. So this came out in August. Did anything happen? Nope. And it sucks because it's important that this article was published. But then the journalist who wrote the article was also found engaging in unethical behavior for the follow-up to this article. Oh, really? I don't remember exactly what he was trying to do, but I think he was trying to, like, get direct quotes or, like, use sources that didn't want to, like, be named and was just being, like, super sketchy about it himself. So it didn't make anything look legit. No, no. But still, it's like, well, he was able to go to Malaya and everybody else was saying that their fees would have been excused. So, like, what's going on here? It's not hard. Jordan was now wavering on whether or not he believed that there ever was strychnine in the bicarbonate. He now believed that the chemist responsible for the analysis was part of the conspiracy to disguise Stanford's death as a murder. So he's saying... Oh my god. He's, was... he's gaslighting all these other doctors. And he wanted a re-examination of the body. Now, of course, Stanford had already been interred because this is August. And all of her organs had already been removed and homogenized to analyze them for strychnine. All of them, that is, except for the brain and the heart, as I mentioned earlier. 
Mm. The, the brain was somehow lost. I don't know how you lose a brain, but it, <laughs> we, we don't have it anymore. This isn't like a piece of paper that fell out of a folder when you're walking down to the filing room. This is a brain. No, lightning struck and you dropped the jar it was in and then you had to grab the Abby normal brain instead. <sighs> now the heart they did have, and it was delivered upon Jordan's request to a guy named Dr. Orfeels, I think his name was. Orfeels concluded, based on his examination of just the heart, that the aorta had been ruptured as a result of fatty degeneration of the heart. He also stated that none of the symptoms observed before her death are incompatible with the assumption that she died of heart disease. In fact, they are best explained by this diagnosis. So he's just looking at the heart and declaring cause of death. I have a problem with this because is this something that a reputable doctor would do nowadays? Like this doesn't seem above board to me. You would look at the heart and like sometimes people do get second opinions on autopsies. That's totally allowed. Sure. But there was nothing of this noted in the first autopsy. Right. And that's where I have a problem. We're getting an opinion on something that's pulled out of literal air by Jordan. And now we're like confirmation bias i don't know if he told or feels like i think this is heart disease it seems like he from the outset wanted to say like it was angina pectoris but i don't know i don't know what he told or feels but i think he picked or feels for a very specific reason this guy had strong interest in cardiac disease and had already conducted his own research on the matter and found that a hundred percent of women by the age of 60 had severe arterial sclerosis And so it's kind of like, cool, you're interested in hearts. Maybe you would be good at looking at a heart in the set of a full autopsy and determining like what cause of death that might play into. But if 100% of women by the age of 60 had severe arteriosclerosis, why would these findings be significant at all? It's just something that is already pretty much known. In December 1905, Jordan reported while in Denver, for some reason he's in Denver now, and he's going on a tear, and he reports that one of the employees at the Stanford household had poisoned the Poland water in order to jeopardize Burner's inheritance. So they were like framing Burner so she wouldn't get anything from Stanford's death. Moreover, he shared his belief, which he'd held since at least April of 1905, he'd written to like a Japanese doctor that this is what he thought, that the Honolulu doctors were claiming that Stanford's death was a murder in order to bolster their fees for their involvement. So they all got together at the scene of the death and they were like, you know. We could charge more money. (laughs) Yeah, if we say that she was murdered, we could charge way more money for this. (sighs) The high sheriff... Henry of Honolulu, who kind of embarrassed himself, he read the article and he made his view known about what he thought of this whole conspiracy. Oh. During his initial investigation back in March, he'd found that Stanford University was close to bankruptcy. He had assumed when Jordan began his own investigation once he showed up, that Jordan was attempting to prevent any delays in the probate of Stanford's will by asserting that she had died from natural causes because a murder would keep things from being doled out to the university. And Mm. he was unaware that the university would ultimately benefit very little from her estate once the will was read. I'm assuming that Jordan had a hand in this in some way. (laughs) But what I'm hearing is, is that like, he didn't realize that all of this work he was doing was for like diddly. In early 1906, Jordan fully redacted the statement he made in Denver. (laughs) 
Okay. He had some sort of written back and forth with Dr. Humphreys about his claims that Stanford died from an aortic rupture. This was before Orpheus had finalized his report mirroring those claims, so maybe he did guide Orpheus to say that. I honestly have mm-hmm. no idea. But it's also weird that he's like just writing back and forth with this guy he's previously accused of either dosing the bottle to make it yeah. look like murder, yeah. saying that there was a murder and a conspiracy. Like, what? How can you just be I know, this- that's he's flipping the script pretty quick. In September 1906, well after the death now, Jordan approached the Council of Physicians in San Francisco, urging them to release an official statement on Stanford's death to state that she died of natural causes, even though the only statement which had been released, aside from the jurors' opinions in Honolulu, was his statement claiming that she had died from undiagnosed natural causes. He really just wants this to be, like, set in stone, and the Council of Physicians was like, no, why are you bothering us with this? I know, they're like, stop it, get out of my office, leave me alone, like, get out. But here's what really happened. According, that is, to Dr. Robert W.P. Cutler, M.D., Stanford Professor of Neurology and Neurological Sciences, Emeritus, and author of The Mysterious Death of Jane Stanford, which is my main source for today. It is completely absurd. (laughs) (laughs) When you look at the grand scheme of the conspiracy theory that Jordan was touting, to consider what the plot would have actually had to involve, it would have had to have been all of the Honolulu doctors, of which there were like four main and like six total, the chemists who were involved, the judge at the coroner's inquest, the Stanford representatives, the sheriffs, and the undertaker. All of them would have had to have been involved immediately without question for this. Right. Conspiracy. They they all signed this pact. They all took a blood oath. All right. <laughs> let's let's say this old lady was murdered, okay? Like, and then everybody just went, All right. That's like literally what they think. And and all of these people that weren't even in the room mm-hmm. when this happened are on board. Dr. Cutler also points out that Waterhouse's report has many limitations, as you and I have already begun to point out. Dr. Cutler says, for one, hysteria isn't a thing. We love to hear it. But even when we thought it was, doctors would not diagnose a 76-year-old woman with hysteria. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) It was was considered disrespectful. Like, it's always disrespectful, but for like... No, No, but it's... But it was mostly for younger women who were meno- yeah, who were menopause or not menopause, menstrual. But who were menstrual, yeah. Two, Waterhouse seemingly disregarded that strychnine poisoning, like most afflictions, is progressive and not all symptoms present at once. The progression can be dose dependent, and he makes no note of the strychnine and the bicarbonate in his report. So he seems to be saying like she didn't show all of the symptoms of strychnine. And Dr. Cutler's like, she showed just some of them and she was only alive for 20 minutes. Right. That doesn't give you a huge window to exhibit much before you're done. Three is that Waterhouse was wrong. He just flat out says he was wrong in suggesting that Burner and Hunt massaging Stanford would have caused her pain or even death from the shock. Rather, he says that someone more well-versed in strychnine poisoning would know that massage can allow for gradual, steady movements when the patient requests and is ready for them, and it can help to mitigate further spasms. Mm. So Burner and Hunt were totally right. The Honolulu physicians also believed that Waterhouse and Jordan were completely wrong, and they fired back with a scathing response published on March 17th that I absolutely love. They say, quote, 
She did not die of an angina pectoris because neither the symptoms of the attack nor the condition of the heart at autopsy confirms that diagnosis. It is imbecile to think that a woman of Mrs. Stanford's age and known mental characteristics might have died of a hysterical spasm in half an hour. Her advanced age, the unaccustomed exertion, surfeit of unsuitable food, and the unusual exposure, either separately or combined, could not cause death as Mrs. Stanford died. No board of health in existence could allow a death certificate based on such a cause of death to go unchallenged. We love to see it. Yeah. Shots fired. Shots fired. Mike <laughs> drops. Like, we love to see it. I love this because they said, no, 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 no. You're not an idiot. Not only are you right. Yeah. Not a- and I love how he's like, not only are you wrong, you're stupid as fuck to even <laughs> think that this is possible. And nobody could allow this to happen in goodwill. Unfortunately, Jordan's assertions of the natural death that he had published on March 5th had been published and essentially killed the public belief that Stanford could have been murdered. It doesn't seem like a lot of this, a lot of this stuff that was going on behind the scenes, the public wasn't aware of in any capacity. Right. Mm. The San Francisco Police Department concluded their investigation once they determined that the poison in the bicarbonate could not have originated in San Francisco, and so it was out of their jurisdiction. And so, like, investigation on the mainland just stopped. Yeah, it's not my monkeys, not my circus. Welton Stanford, who was Jane Stanford's nephew, published a notice in the San Francisco Examiner on May 25th that he was offering a $1,000 reward if someone were to find and convict the killer of his aunt. So it was basically just left up to individual citizens now. Like, some people still did believe she was murdered, but the rest of the public, they were like, eh, papers say natural death. I guess it was natural. Hmm. And you did earlier say, I think that Jordan is suspicious, but Dr. Jordan had no reason to be implicated as a possible murderer in Stanford's death. And And he wasn't there. He wasn't there. A murderer was never found. And so Stanford's death remains unsolved to this day. Dang. I don't know. I find that tragic. It is tragic. I find it not only tragic because it remains unsolved, but I find it tragic that there was a narrative that lived on for so long Mm -hmm. that was false. And her family, I mean, obviously she has like a nephew who gives a shit about her. Right. I, I wonder how much of the information her family was even privy to. Well, it seems like it's kind of like the information was there. Public opinion kind of died out and like Waterhouse was, I think, charged with unethical conduct. And so, like, everybody just sort of wandered away from the case. But, like, Hmm. the information was there. Like, when this guy started writing the book, he was like, people seem to just know that it was a murder. And it's like, how do you you know that that's a murder? I thought it was natural. And then you go back and you're like, oh, shit. In Honolulu, they thought it was a murder. But, like, it just went unsolved. That's sad. She never got justice. The family never found out, never got Mm -hmm. any closure. Mm -mm. And they had to deal with all of this other bullshit on top of it. She just died. Can we just like, even if we're not going to investigate it, can we not add all of this shit, put parts of her body under the microscope for no reason? Yeah. Well, what is strychnine? (laughs) I know we've been talking about it for how long and now I'm going to finally get to the talks. (laughs) So does it always come from a tree? It comes from a plant. Yeah. 
Okay. So it's a bitter alkaloid that comes from many plants in the Strychnose genus. Most of these plants, including the Strychnose nux vomica plant that we talked about, mm, mm-hmm. grow in warm regions of Africa, North America, and Asia. Strychnine can be extracted from the seeds of the Indian nux vomica plant. That's where the Cascara one comes from. Okay. You can extract the strychnine from this really easily, and humans have extracted strychnine from these seeds for centuries for use as a pesticide and for human medicine. We, and we were talking about this earlier when it mm-hmm. was suspected that there was strychnine in the tonic or mm-hmm. added as a part of a tonic, like intentionally. Right. right. So was that used often as a tonic or pill? Like they had tried to claim it was in the mm-hmm. bicarbonate? Yeah, it was used fairly commonly, actually. Huh. So it was known that it could elevate blood pressure and was used in indigenous, indigenous medicine for that purpose. And it could be used to improve muscle tone because it causes that constriction of muscle. But it wasn't isolated until 1818. And once it was isolated, it found a ton of uses. People tried to use it to treat paralysis with mixed results. It could be used as a sexual stimulant pre-Viagra for the same reason that it can raise your blood pressure. Okay. And it could be used in certain, like, quote-unquote snake oil-type medicines that claimed strychnine could be used to treat tuberculosis, anemia, bronchitis, influenza, and the wasting diseases of childhood. So it's another one that we found it, and we were just like, let's put it in everything. Put it in everything. Yeah, we love this. We love strychnine. Mostly, strychnine was not used as an emetic or a purgative, but was used to stimulate the body and provide alertness, like it was used to give you pep. Huh. One rather famous case of this going dangerously awry occurred in 1904, so around the same time, right? Mm -hmm. When Thomas Hicks, the American marathon runner, was participating in the Olympic marathon. Marathons have always been tough. Like, the first person to ever run one supposedly died. And I don't think they're a whole lot better now, even. But I think that the conditions in 1904 for runners were closer to ancient Greece than modern the modern-day Boston Marathon. Mm, like, mm-hmm. they seem pretty rough back then. Right. So, 1904, Hicks was at mile 14, about halfway through the race, when he started to hit the wall. His last water station was three miles behind him on a dirt road, which is to say there was a well with a bucket that he could have pulled some water up from to drink out of the ground. (laughs) But his trainers weren't letting him drink water for some reason. They're like, you're not going to drink water on this marathon. That's what chumps do. Right. (laughs) Okay. His trainers had decided that they were going to give him a 1904-style energy drink consisting of one milliliter of strychnine and egg whites. Mm-mm. Mm, just yummy. like just like a goo pack, right? <laughs> yeah, love it, love it. So Hicks was severely dehydrated from this total Surprise. lack of water, <laughs> from the lack of water and the strychnine and egg white diet that he's on. Right, the poor guy. Right, but he was doing really well in the marathon, despite yeah, despite all this. He had a mile lead on everyone. Oh, and so his trainers must have thought. This is the key. We're doing this guy a favor. He's doing so well. And they wouldn't even let him dilute his strychnine egg drink with water because they were like, no water for you. And so when he began to flag again, they gave him another dose of strychnine and mixed it with brandy. No water for you. No water. (laughs) Booze, strychnine, and eggs for you. (laughs) I have no idea how this guy did it. In the last two miles of the race, Hicks was still managing to keep his legs moving, but an onlooker described his face as ashen. He was barely lifting his legs, couldn't bend his knees, and his trainers actually considered giving him a third dose of strychnine, you know, for energy, but thankfully decided against it. Oh, good. They had to physically support his body as he crossed the finish line, 
the onlookers again saw that he had a rigid look on his face because his muscles were in that tight grin because they were in a sustained spasm from strychnine. He was limping, hallucinating, and eight pounds lighter than when he started. Yeah. Yeah. But he was alive and declared the winner of the 1904 marathon. Let's all hear it for Mr. Thomas Hicks. Bravo. Wow. Bravo. Bravo indeed. <laughs> I couldn't run 28 miles <laughs> if I had all the water and no strychnine. So he's, he's winning. Yeah. He's winning. When Jane Stanford died, strychnine was still a popular tonic in medicine, clearly. By the time Agatha Christie's Mysterious Affair at Styles was published in 1920, its use in Western medicine had begun to wane. But some people were still using it to the point that in the 1970s, journals were like, we need to stop using strychnine. There should be no more strychnine. And in 2001, an Indian weightlifter was banned from competition for use of performance-enhancing drugs in the form of strychnine. And strychnine is also still used homeopathically in some practices, like in certain Indian practices where they might still prescribe Nux Vomica for energy and blood pressure because it's like a, you know, it's an indigenous medicine. So in some places it is still prescribed, but in like hospitals today and anything that would pass FDA regulations today, not as much. Gotcha. The reason that strychnine does all this, the reason that it was thought to provide energy, it can increase your blood pressure, is because strychnine is the main xenobiotic affecting glycinergic transmission, the transmission of glycine. Glycine is an inhibitory neurotransmitter in the spinal cord and lower brainstem. So what strychnine does is it inhibits the inhibitor of the spinal cord and brainstem, which is why you get that intense arching in the back primarily. Because you have something that tells you don't do that. Right, and you're taking that away. Got it. Okay. And you also get the arching in the back because you also get it in, like, your hands and your feet. You do get a little bit of tightening through your chest, but you get it in the back because of the glycine, but also because a lot of people's back is stronger than their abs. Your back has to keep mm-hmm. you supported all day, and our abs are kind of weak. Strychnine binds to a unit of the glycine receptor, and it decreases the glycine binding to the receptor because strychnine actually binds three times more strongly than glycine to the receptor. Oh, shit. Yes. And this results in increased muscle tone, rigidity, and death from respiratory failure. And so the respiratory failure, what makes that happen? Like, is it because the muscles are so rigid that they can't? I think it's either there's the rigidity around your whole chest like that, or it's your diaphragm. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Now, the tetanus toxin also produces rigidity by preventing glycine release from the neuronal terminals and the spinal cord and brainstem too. So that's why it acts in the same way, is that tetanus acts kind of in the same fashion, and so you get that arching of the back in both cases. Okay. Symptoms of strychnine poisoning occur within 15 to 30 minutes of ingestion, and I think that follows pretty much what we saw with Jane Stanford. So they went to bed at 9, and they didn't hear from her again until 11.15, but in the book, I think it says around 11, they could hear her vomiting, so about 15 minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's progressive, as we said, so it first starts to present as tingling and slight twitching of the muscles, and then you get nausea and vomiting, followed by more intense spasms and convulsions, alternating with periods of relaxed calm, which is also what we saw with Jane Stanford, where it was just Mm -hmm. her jaw, and then it was her whole body, and then it would release, and then it was her whole body for three minutes. Victims also tend to have a bright red complexion because their muscles are working so hard because they're constantly Mm -hmm. contracted that they're just burning through oxygen. 
Is that how maybe Mr. Hicks like burned through all of that weight? Cause he's just burning <sighs> through the cow. Like maybe, maybe, I don't know, man. I don't know how he did that. That's, that's wild. Yeah. That shit was wild. Like that one's going to stick with me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just like a side story. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Death from strychnine poisoning usually occurs within one to three hours with the victim totally exhausted from the experience and ultimately killed from asphyxiation because the muscles of the respiratory system and the diaphragm are affected. For adults who do survive, convulsions usually subside within 12 to 24 hours of ingestion. Like, can you imagine having no. these spasms for like a whole no. day? No, I mean, I've had, I've had some stuff, nothing like that with my back, but I've had issues with my legs and my hands in before. And mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, minutes of that are yeah. horrible. Yeah. Let yeah. alone hours, like pass, hard pass, <laughs> hard pass. No, thank you. Strychnine poisoning can be treated nowadays with an anticonvulsant. Typically, intravenous diazepam is preferred. Okay. So they can do it. Historically, if they wanted to try to treat Jane Stanford or something and they had everything available to them and they were just like, oh, we need a stomach pump and that's all we can do. It's interesting because curare could have been used because it's a poison. It's a very potent poison, which we will definitely talk about. And it's interesting that this could be used kind of as an antidote to strychnine because it is an alkaline extract of the strychnose toxifera plant. So it's like a cousin. Okay. Instead of blocking glycine, though, curare blocks acetylcholine so that the nerves cannot fire and the muscles don't contract. So it's effectively canceling each other out. Yeah. That is weird, but it's fun weird. It's fun weird because it's like (laughs) two poisons together make an antidote. And then activated charcoal has also been successfully administered in instances of strychnine ingestion to avoid poisoning in like a 10 to 1 strychnine to activated charcoal ratio. Gotcha. Yeah. So it could be very effective, but I think you would have to ingest it fairly soon after because once it starts getting through the Making its rounds. Yeah. Yeah. And it attaches to the glycine receptors yes yes yeah once it attaches to those receptors like it's kind of game over i guess one of my last questions might just be like does strychnine poisoning i lied i have two okay (laughs) is strychnine available easily i don't think so i don't think it's used as a rat poison or anything anymore I, I mean, I imagine that it wouldn't be, but I was just curious. The strychnine is still used primarily as a pesticide, particularly to kill rats. Huh. Are there still murders with strychnine or accidental poisonings in the modern day? I don't think that it's super common. I think I okay. have maybe recently heard of a strychnine death. Sure. And it was somewhere okay. that had like a really, really, really bad rat problem. And so they were just like, oh, try these rat poisons. Because like, we all have, the rat poison. Yeah. We have a bad rat problem. So like, we're going to gotcha. help you with the rat problem. And then that helped with a different problem. Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, because strychnine's up there as far as like, it feels to me like it's up there with cyanide and arsenic and mm-hmm. these more old timey. And so I was just curious as to if it's still still a fan favorite. Yeah, I I kind of wanted to give it the treatment of a multiple parter, but I think that my hesitation was that I don't think that it has really come into the modern age like the other drugs have. Because I don't think aside from like homeopathy and maybe some like some practitioners that still like hold out on using it, it just really isn't a thing that's used. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, this was an interesting one. 
I'm glad you liked it. And this is the last one for season two. So yeah, we wanted to have some time off for the holidays. We will be posting more episodes to our Patreon. So there will be an episode in December on Patreon. But for everybody else, you will hear back from us in January when we return. Over on our Patreon, we just released a microdose about modern food safety, which was supposed to be kind of like a follow-up to the typhoid episode. And I realized that we never say, like, on the show, hey, we just did a microdose about this, go check it out. It's all over our social media, but then I realized we never say it on the show. But you can join both the $2 tier or the $5 tier, which the $5 tier has the same access to stuff as the $2 tier, plus a little bit more. You can join all 13 of our current patrons. That's Angela, Sue, Josh, Champlu, Crumbs and Bass, Michelle, Jenny, Lula, Imp, Johnny Cash, Izzy, Key, Patrick, and Venus. For all the fun that we'll be having between seasons and then seasons to come. And that means that you have access to everything we've put out in season one and season two. You'll have access to that. It's not like it starts at the end of season two. We'd love if you were to go to check that out, hang out with us, hang out with our other 13 patrons. And the more people that we have, the more benefits that we can add and the more tiers that we can add and the more content that you'll have access to. Thank you for supporting us just by listening. It really means a lot. There's no need to give us money if you don't feel inclined or if you're not able to. But if you're feeling a little like treat yourself or treat somebody else for the holiday season, that might be a nice little gift. Get yourself a year membership or something and see how you like it. So from Lethal Dose Podcast to you, happy holidays, and we'll see you in 2022. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison. <laughs>